Acts 21, 1 to 16. Today, we'll begin by reading verses 10 to 14. This is the word of God. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Today begins a sub-series in the larger series of the book of Acts called Paul in Jerusalem. And I want to zero in today on his determination. You see that very clearly in verse 12, how all of his companions said, don't go up to Jerusalem. But Paul was so determined to go, even if it cost him his life. And today, as we look at Holy Scripture, I hope that it it helps us by the Spirit of God to always be determined to do his will, even if it's very costly. Let's ask God's blessing. Father... Please bless the word today as it goes forth. Help us to to see in Paul a a picture of Christ that we too may follow in his footsteps. Please be pleased to save the lost and to edify your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so verse 13 tells us that Paul said, what are you doing Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the height and the weight and the gravity of determination. Someone is so focused and determined and persistent to do something that they don't care if it costs them their very physical life. The Oxford Dictionary defines determination as firmness of purpose or resolution. We all know about times in life where we need to be determined, right? Perhaps in your in place of employment, there's a generic poster somewhere in the office that says determination and has a little blurb underneath. Perhaps when you were younger, your coaches encouraged you to be determined, to come to practice and to practice hard and keep your eyes on the prize. Perhaps teachers helped you to be determined to pass your SATs or your college exams by coming alongside and cheering you on and telling you not to give up because you have to have purpose in heart. And why do we need that? Well, we need determination because things in this sin-cursed world are hard. Most of us are not going to be born into privilege. We have to work for it. We have to work for the jobs that we have. We have to work for the salaries we have. We have to work for the things that we have. And so we need determination. Because it doesn't just come to us. And we all know about this to one degree or another. But doesn't it help you in whatever that thing might be? That that thing, just think in your mind. What am I so determined to do? Nobody can stop me. Doesn't it help you to know that there are people around you encouraging you in that? 
We can all probably tell stories about times where we wanted to give up. And maybe a brother or sister came alongside and said, don't give up. I'm praying for you. And it helped your determination. But I ask you this morning, what if there was no one to help you? What if everyone around you said, no, what you're doing is too dangerous. It's too costly. That's the height of determination. Because while it is commendable for all of us who've never given up on something, to take the encouragement some people have given us and run with it, it's even more commendable for the one who is standing for truth even when no one else around them is standing. And in this text, all of Paul's friends, his companions... His teammates in the gospel were telling him over and again, don't go to Jerusalem. But back in Acts chapter 19, you might remember, Paul said he was determined in the spirit to go. And ever since Paul set his face toward Jerusalem, he was walking in that direction. He was sailing in that direction. He was probably riding horses in that direction. And there's no one on earth... Who could stop him? He stood contra mundum, which means against the world. Paul contra mundum. In church history, there's an expression called Athanasius contra mundum, which points to a church father back in the fourth century named Athanasius, who was one of the very few in his time period to stand up for the truth that Jesus Christ is not a created being. He stood against the heresy of Arianism. And Arianism believes that Jesus was created by God. That means he doesn't have an eternal existence. He is not truly God. And even though Athanasius may have won that battle, the Arians are still around today, mostly in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses. But in the 3rd and 4th century, much of the professing church was becoming beholden to this false doctrine of Arianism. Even some bishops bought into it. Even some whole regions bought into it. And in many ways, Athanasius stood against the world. You fast forward in church history, you find an Augustinian monk against the world named Martin Luther, who stood before the the council of the Catholic Church in the Diet of Worms in the 1500s, And even though all the people surrounding him, except perhaps a few friends, were asking him, just recant. Recant of what you've written against the Pope. Recant of your 95 theses. Recant of saying that justification is by faith alone. Martin Luther would not bow. He would not bend. Even if it cost him his life. And so Paul is working here against the world, determined to do something that he believes in his heart of hearts that God himself called him to do. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, I'm going to give you a few verses here, and you don't have to turn for sake of time, but I'll say them so you can make note of them. 19.21 says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit... To pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. So ever since chapter 19, Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. 
And then in Romans 15, here's what he says to the Romans. He says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So we put these things together. I can give you four reasons why Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. Four reasons. Number one, Paul was aware of the threat of the Judaizers. The Judaizers are people who were saying, if you want to be saved, you have to basically become Jewish. You have to observe the calendar. You have to observe the dietary laws. And if you've not been circumcised, you have to be circumcised. Paul knew about this. He actually was in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And he wanted to go back and confront those false teachers. But he wanted to do it in person. Secondly, Jerusalem is the headquarter church. This is the place where it all began. And so Paul wanted to visit, perhaps to see Peter and James and and help preach the gospel to the lost, that the church would be built up and strong. Thirdly, as I just read in Romans 15, Paul was bringing an offering to the church. Uh, the, The churches of the Gentiles wanted to help the churches of the Jews, particularly Jerusalem, which was a Jewish church. As Paul said in Romans 15, if they had been sharing in the spiritual blessings, that is, salvation in Messiah, then they would also want to share in physical blessings and give what the Jerusalem church did not have. We might find that foreign because if we want to give to a church miles away, we just Venmo, right? Wire transfer. Paul didn't have that. He had to physically go to the churches of Macedonia and Achaia and take the money and then bring it himself to Jerusalem. And fourthly, and most importantly, why did Paul want to go to Jerusalem? Number one, the threat of the Judaizers. Number two, it was the headquarters church. Number three, to bring an offering. But number four is because the Spirit of God compelled him to go. God told Paul to go. Back in Acts 19, it was in the Spirit that Paul learned he must go to Jerusalem. And when God says go... We are not to say no. Jonah learned that, right? But all along the way, in chapters 19, 20, 21, even though the Spirit of God showed Paul to go to Jerusalem, consistently and persistently, Paul would continue to get warnings. Go to Jerusalem, but nothing but imprisonment, suffering, and persecution await you. Would you want to know what awaits you next week, next month? Some of us would say, yes, I want to know. I'm not sure we would. But what if the Spirit of God were to tell you, I want you to go to a particular place. And by the way, when you go, you should expect nothing but suffering. Would you still go? Like when Isaiah in chapter 6 was told, go and preach to the people. And by the way, no one's going to listen to you. But preach anyway. Our obedience to the Lord sometimes might defy what we think is common sense. But if we trust the one who's giving us the command, we will follow with faithfulness and in this case, determination. I want you to sort of unpack Paul's determination in chapter 21, verse 1 to 16. Not so much a typical expositional sermon where I go verse by verse by verse in order. 
But examine the source of his determination and what that means for us today. Because a sermon like this could be very misunderstood. It could even fuel us who feel like, well, if I'm determined to do something, it must be right. Well, let's make sure that what we want to do lines up with what the Word of God says. So first, let's go all the way back and understand that Paul's life, Paul's entire heartbeat was to live a life as much with union in Christ as he possibly could. Paul's life is a parallel to Christ's life. Will you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3? Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, this is one of the most uh, popular Pauline passages in the epistles. And he says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. That, That means Paul's saying... I can boast if I want to. Why? Because he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he's got the family heritage. Then he goes on to say, as to the law, a Pharisee. Also, he's very obedient. Uh, Verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. What he now comes to hate at one point he can use as boastful pride to say, look how zealous I was. I even persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now Paul was very detailed in his obedience. But then verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Some translations say dung. In order that I may gain Christ. You see what's happening in Paul's mind is all the things that he was brought up knowing was, was all the achievements you can have. Righteousness, zeal, a Hebrew of Hebrews, God's chosen people. He says, this is nothing. Matter of fact, I take all this and I compare it to rubbish compared to knowing Christ. It's all lost and I've lost it all for Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse nine and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Theologians call that an alien righteousness. You and I are not righteous. Even Paul, as meticulous as he was as a Pharisee, uh, um, every jot and tittle, tithing everything, obeying every law, even his righteousness could not earn him favor with God. Because even if he attained to 99% righteous, he still not met God's standard, which is perfection. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that describes Paul, that describes me and you. And brothers and sisters, then we need a righteousness. Where are we going to get it? It's an alien righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's someone else's righteousness must be imputed to our account. And Paul says that in verse 9 again. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, God sees you as he sees his son. Perfect, holy, blameless. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And Paul did, didn't he? Remember Eutychus falling out of the window? Paul, Paul have seen, has seen so far in his life many evidences of the power of Christ's resurrection. But then he goes on to say, And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, how many of us would continue that verse? How many of us would say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and sort of leave out that other part and be like him in his death? Lord, I will go wherever you go. I will drink the cup that you drink. That's how determined Paul was to live a life like Jesus Christ. To share in his sufferings. And I wonder, when we go through suffering, if it ever crosses our mind, that no matter how hard it is, that that is an opportunity to know Christ even more. He is with you in a unique way in your suffering. Because he trod the path before you. He knows loss. He knows hunger. He knows sorrow. He knows grief. He knows physical pain. He knows abandonment. He knows betrayal. He knows it all. And our suffering is an opportunity to be united with him. Not only in his resurrection, but also in his suffering. Paul's life is a parallel to Christ's life. Like Jesus, Paul was Jewish. Like Jesus, Paul gave his life completely over to others to know God. And like Jesus, Luke 9.51 says of Jesus, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why is that so important? Jerusalem would be the place... Where Jesus would be betrayed, denied three times, rejected, abandoned, arrested. When arrested, his disciples would completely run away. And he would be left alone. And then he would carry his cross to Mount Calvary. He would be nailed to that cross, naked and ashamed with a crown of thorns, forced upon his head and mocked by those around him to then suffer and bleed and die. And don't think for a moment any of this surprised Jesus. He knew what would happen to him, and yet he set his face toward Jerusalem. Because the work of the Father was to go and to drink the cup of his wrath and become a substitute for sinners like you and me. Just as much as Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, so Paul set his face toward Jerusalem because Paul's life was a parallel to Jesus' life. So where does Paul's determination come from, first and foremost? It comes from his union with Christ. When you think about the things that you're determined to do, ask yourself the first question, is this a Christ-like ambition? 
Could I truly say this is out of union with Christ that I would want to do this thing? Number two, Paul's revelations as warnings of suffering. All this began when Paul first got converted. I'm not going to recap the whole thing. You might remember Paul was on the Damascus road. He saw a great light. He was blinded, knocked off of his horse. And when God spoke to Paul, one of the curious things he said to him was, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. At the very outset of Paul's conversion, he was told he will suffer for the name of Jesus. And that's all the way back in Acts chapter 9. Then as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, Acts chapter 20, we learn the Holy Spirit tells him every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me on the way to Jerusalem. And then we come to our text. And we read already in verse 10 of our text about this prophet who comes from Jerusalem, by the way, named Agabus. And Agabus shows him a symbol. Many times prophets will use illustrations. They'll use props, right? And Agabus uses a belt. It's Paul's belt. And then he he binds his own feet and hands so that Paul can see an illustration of if you go to Jerusalem, this is what you will look like. You will be bound. You will be arrested. The freedom, Paul, that you enjoy right now to decide, I'm going to go to Achaia, I'm going to go to Macedonia, you will no longer have that freedom. You will be at the beck and call of the people who confiscate your very life. It's not a prohibition. There's nothing in here that says, therefore, don't go to Jerusalem. Believe it or not, there are some commentators who believe this is an example of Paul being disobedient and saying, just going against all counsel and saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. But the majority of commentators, and I agree with them, is that Paul did the right thing. Because there is nowhere where the Spirit of God ever says, don't go. It's the people listening to what the Spirit says is going to happen out of fear for Paul's life that say, don't go. So Paul's getting all these warnings, but these warnings are not a way of saying, don't proceed any further. They're helping him to count the cost. Paul, unlike you and me, receives direct revelation from the Spirit, either in visions or dreams or through the prophets. Let me remind you that the apostolic era has ceased. I know there are many people today who would say, I'm an apostle, or they would um, operate under signs and wonders and dreams. It's very difficult to sort through the mess. If someone here were to stand up and say, God gave me a vision, And told me that such and such is going to happen tomorrow. What if someone else stands up on the other side and says, God gave me a vision. What that guy said was wrong. How are we supposed to know? What we need to know is written down for us in Scripture. Scripture is inspired and inerrant and infallible. Now, I don't claim to believe that God can never speak to us through a dream or through circumstances. But God's revelation will never contradict His Word. It's hard for us to sometimes tell the difference between a dream we had that's the result of God coming to speak to us versus 
the result of a late night snack we had at one in the morning. And when you're very determined to do something, it's very easy to interpret all things, all signs as, oh look, God gave me a sign. God, if you want me to have this job, give me a sign. Then it starts to rain. Aha! God made it rain on this whole city for me to have this job. We are very sensitive. We are very vulnerable. When we're very emotional, we want to do something. Is that what's happening to Paul here? I don't think so. Because the difference here is that all the circumstances around Paul's life are telling him why he should not go to Jerusalem. But the Spirit of God speaks to Paul in ways he does not speak to us today. And the Spirit of God tells him to go. But count the cost, because you will suffer. Paul was determined to go because the Spirit of God led him to go. Number three, Paul's companions as hindrances. Paul was always surrounded by people in his life who loved him and helped him preach the gospel with him, plant the churches with him. But sometimes they may have come in the way of God's will. Look at verse 4 in our text. And having sought the disciples, he stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. This is perhaps the most controversial verse in this text. I'm reading from the ESV. I'm not sure what some of your versions might say. But it it does seem in verse 4 that the Spirit of God is using these people to tell him no, right? The Spirit of God is never going to contradict himself because the Spirit of God is God. The most reasonable explanation here is that through the Spirit, these disciples understood what Paul understood, which is, you will suffer. You might even die. And then based upon that knowledge... They drew the conclusion, don't go. Paul, don't go. We don't want you to die. We don't want you to suffer. Look at verse 12 and 13. Same text. Acts 21, 12, 13. When we heard this, what did they hear? They they heard what Agabus said with the belt. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Paul was determined to go, but it doesn't mean he didn't have a heart. That he wasn't emotional. He didn't love his friends. He, he, he loved his friends. He didn't want them to suffer knowing that he was suffering. But he tells them, don't break my heart. I have to go. From cover to cover, the Bible is replete with the need for counsel. None of us should be a maverick doing our own things. The Bible calls us to community. And in that community, we're told to obey our elders. We're told to teach one another, admonish one another. Proverbs tells us in the multitude of counsel, there's safety. But sometimes the counsel might be wrong. In this case, their counsel is coming from common sense and a desire to protect their friend. Paul Didn't you hear what the Spirit said? Didn't you hear what Agabus said? If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to imprison you. But again, Paul's life is a parallel to Christ. Does this remind you of anything in Christ's life? 
How about in Matthew 16? Where Jesus tells his disciples in verse 21 that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And then somebody had the audacity to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. You know who I'm talking about? Peter. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine rebuking Jesus. And he said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, did Peter have good intentions? Did Peter want to protect his savior, his rabbi from death and harm? Of course. But how did Jesus take that rebuke? take it so well, did he? It says in verse 23 of Matthew 16, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Peter was Jesus' chief disciple. Jesus poured his heart and life into Peter. Peter would become a leader after Christ ascended to heaven. This was not the end of Peter's ministry. But this rebuke was needed. Because Peter stood in the way of Christ and the cross. From the human mind, you and I would have probably done the same thing. Because after the three years spent with Jesus, watching him walk on water, watching him feed 5,000, we don't want him to die. Far be it from you, Lord. No, no, no. Don't go to Jerusalem. You can understand that. But what Peter did not understand was that Jesus, the Son of God, the sovereign king, had already decreed That he must go to Jerusalem, he must die, and he must be raised again. And if you stand between him and that destiny, you stand in the way of God. And so you better move over. And just as Peter said, I'm sorry, Jesus said to Peter, you're a hindrance to me. Now we look back in Acts 21, and these friends of Paul... And you notice that often in this text, he uses the word we. That means the writer was involved. Luke, Luke himself is in this text with the companions of Paul saying, we told him don't go. But Paul says in verse 13, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul, like Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem and he would not allow even his closest friends to hinder what he knew God had called him to do. But we don't, we don't leave on just a negative note here. That his friends were only looking out for his physical life and not his spiritual life. Because Paul's friends were not only hindrances to him, they were also encouragement. And you need to see that both can be true at the same time. Don't walk away from this text thinking, oh, look, Paul was a maverick. I can be a maverick. I don't have to listen to anyone. Paul didn't listen to anyone. Beware the man who prides himself in being a maverick. Now, I don't mean that in a political sense. I know back in the early 2000s, John McCain ran a whole campaign about being the maverick for President. I'm talking about in a spiritual sense, 
There are people, especially out there on the internet, who pride themselves in not listening to anyone. No one's going to tell me what to do. That attitude is completely against the witness of Scripture from cover to cover. Paul is not a maverick. He's not a lone wolf. You can't use this text to justify that kind of idea of Paul. Remember that when Paul was converted, he went immediately to the apostles to seek their hand of fellowship, to verify that he was indeed an apostle. He didn't go around just saying, I saw a vision of Jesus. No, it's I saw a vision of Jesus and Peter and John verified it for me. Paul was not a maverick. Paul always had helpers with him. Wherever he traveled, he was with a team. Paul is the one who, through the Spirit, in the book of Ephesians, used the phrase one-anothering dozens of times. And despite Paul's disagreements with his friends on this issue, his friends were also a source of encouragement for him. Look in verse 1. And when we had parted from them, this is when he left the Ephesian elders, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found the ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard, excuse me, aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days." Now, the reason why this is so detailed is because Luke, who you might know is a physician by trade, who is very detailed, is writing this not only as a witness, but he, he was there. So often Luke writes from reports. Luke is in this text, so he probably has a journal, and we went here, and we went there, and we went here, and we went there. But in many ways, he's trying to show us that everywhere Paul went on his way to Jerusalem, he met with believers. He was encouraged by them. In in verse 4, it says he stayed with them for seven days in time. And then verse 5. Look at verse 5. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down to the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. They had a prayer meeting on a beach. And this was after, at the end of verse 4, they say to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Somewhere between the end of verse 4 and verse 5, Paul made it clear to them, I'm going. But notice he doesn't storm out. He doesn't distance himself from them. They don't kick him out and say, well, if you're not going to listen to us, you're out of here. No. They go together to the beach and they pray. These these men and women of of Tyre are encouragements to Paul, even in his very tough decision. Verse 7. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So wherever Paul goes, he's being hosted. It's the brothers that encourage Paul. We were reintroduced here to Philip in verse 8. Philip the deacon, Philip the evangelist. 
Luke points out that he had uh, four unmarried daughters. That, that seems to tell us that they're of marriage age, but yet they're choosing to stay home with their father. There's no mention of a mother. The, the idea that we're getting here is that Philip is an evangelist and his four daughters are with him in that role. They host people. They preach the gospel. They're with their dad and they're hosting Paul. This is the Paul who's not listening to people. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But do you notice he's not alone? He's never alone. He's with God's people. God's people are an encouragement to him. Then finally, I think it's so important that we understand verse 14. Paul finally heads out towards Jerusalem only when those around him recognize that what he is doing is the will of the Lord. Verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. See, Paul doesn't just storm off and do whatever he wants against all counsel. He simply demonstrates his faithfulness to God's call. And eventually, his companions get on board. They stop warning him and they say, all right, may God's will be done. If God is calling you there, we're fine with it. And not only are we fine with it, we'll help arrange something for you and go with you. I think we we missed this. Look at verse 15. After these days, we got ready. We, we got ready. See the we there? The very people saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Okay, fine. You want to do this? We'll go with you. They're with him. And they get ready and they go with him to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea, that's from Philip's house, went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. The disciples of Caesarea knew a man in Jerusalem. You see what's happening here? The people who said, don't go to Jerusalem, arrange for a place in Jerusalem. Once they realize that what Paul is doing is the will of God. How encouraging it is when brothers and sisters can be united in knowing, okay, this is God's will. We didn't think it was God's will. We were really hesitant about the the dangers and the cost. But now we're on the same page. So Paul's friends were hindrances to him, but Paul, Paul um, in a sense, had victory over that, just as Jesus did with Peter. And now he's together with his friends and companions in Jerusalem because Paul was determined. When we are faced with making tough decisions, the brethren around us are vital. Even when they don't necessarily agree with us. What was Paul following? Paul was not following his heart. He was not following his emotions. And he wasn't following common sense. Paul's determination was based upon the will of God. Because God revealed to him that his destination was Jerusalem. And now we leave Our text for this morning, in verse 16, Paul and the disciples of Caesarea are with him in Jerusalem. 
in the house of a man from Cyprus. We leave him there. He's the man who traveled freely. Soon he would have limited freedoms. Soon he would be in chains. Soon he would be under house arrest. And this is where it all begins. This is the beginning of the end for Paul's physical life. How do we apply that to us this morning? Well, I think that the very straightforward application for us is to determine to follow Christ wherever he leads. This is not a motivational talk. I didn't come here today for a motivational speech about just be determined. Get good grades. Go for the prize. You can go elsewhere for that. Because that which we might be determined to do, brothers and sisters, might cost us our lives. It might cost us friends and family. Some of you have already made costly decisions because of your decision to follow Christ. So we must follow him with determination. Otherwise we'll be swayed back and forth. So how do we know that God's leading us? It's not by a gut feeling. It's not by saying, well, this is just what I think should be the case. This is most convenient. This is the most profitable. No, we know God's leading the same way Paul did by God's revelation to us. But for us, it's not dreams or visions, but his word. God's word. You say, I wish, I wish God would speak to me. This is God's revelation to you. So often, we have these decisions to make. Trust me, I know in my family every year we have decisions to make. And God does not tell us in these pages which job to take, which person to date, uh, where to move, how much money to put in savings. But there are many things it does say that we're not obeying. And I wonder... If we're not going to obey the clear commands of Scripture, why is it that we agonize over those things that are not so clear? You may be determined to do many things in life, but obedience to God's will ought to occupy the most space in your heart. Obedience to God's will. And I want to encourage you to do that, number one, even if you are alone. Even if you are contra mundum, against the world. It's not so typical for us here in America. Uh, even if you have left most of your friends and family becoming a Christian, you probably know some who are. And of course you have this church. Uh, this might, might be more common in places where you have to meet underground or you don't know many other believers. Or places where churches are not nearly as filled as this. But you never know where God will take you and you might be alone. At the end of Paul's life, he was pretty much alone. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, from prison, he says, do your best to come to me. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. He does say in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. It's almost like a parting gift. I've only got Luke but Paul's alone for the most part. And again, Paul's life, it's a parallel Jesus' life. 
What does it say in Mark 14, 50 about Jesus? It says, and they all left him and fled. Simon Kistmaker, in his commentary on Acts, says Paul here shows unflinching determination in the face of an emotional response from his own companions. Oh God, give us that unflinching determination. Even if you are standing alone, even if your, your whole family and friends say the way that you organize your time around your church and you read your Bible and you believe this and, and they may abandon you, even if you're standing alone, stand, stand with determination. And remember what Martin Luther said, that one with God is a majority. Number two. Even if it means suffering. Follow Christ even if it means suffering. In Acts 20, 24, Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, it may be foreign to you and me living in a comfortable Western world where we don't suffer the kinds of persecutions that our brothers and sisters do around the world. But Paul does tell Timothy that all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, whether that's ostracized or mocked or insulted or physically harmed. We all will experience some of that. But isn't that not the way of Christ? Didn't Jesus tell his disciples that if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Hate your own life for my sake. If there's something that God's word tells you and me to do, and we say, but that's too uncomfortable. That's too inconvenient. That's too costly. Then we do not understand what it means to be a disciple. But can I encourage you? When you choose to suffer for the cause of Christ, God is with you in a unique way. It's just like when we have a body part that, that needs healing. A finger, an arm, it hurts. There's a cut. What do you do? You don't abandon it. You actually draw closer to it, right? You wash it. You put gauze on it. You put a band-aid on it. Whatever it is. If you have disease in your body, you get it treated. You don't, you don't go away from it and leave it to its own devices. You draw close to it, right? When we're suffering, Jesus draws closer to us. He's with us. That's why he told his disciples, look, you're going to go before courts. You're going to go before princes, councils. They're going to ask you questions about your faith. You're going to have to stand up for me, but don't think right now what you're going to say in that hour. Because when that hour comes, the Spirit of God will tell you what to say. I can say the same about my life. I'm a pastor. I preach God's Word for a living. I don't trust myself that if somebody were to put a gun to my head, I would be strong enough to say, you know what, don't kill me, I don't believe. I don't trust myself. I believe my flesh is weak. But I do trust that somehow... If that were to come, in that hour, the Spirit of God would so descend upon me that He would give me the courage to stand. And that is my only hope.
When you walk through suffering, God is walking with you. And so follow God's will, even if you are alone, even if it means suffering. And finally, for the glory of God. Because we are all faced with decisions, right? Jobs, relationships, classes, moving. Perhaps right now you are trying to make decisions about your life. And sometimes we have people telling us, do this. And sometimes people we have, just like Paul, tell us, don't do this. The question we ought to ask, is the decision you are making part of God's redemptive plan to glorify His Son through the salvation of a people? That's why Paul went to Jerusalem. That's why Jesus went to Jerusalem. Because it was through their decision to go that we would be saved. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but oftentimes our decisions about those other things don't come close to God's grand scheme of glorifying His Son through the redemption of a people. So how do I know? Well, I think it's the difference between selfishness and selflessness. Your determination that says, I'm doing this for me, that's a worldly determination. But the one that says, I'm doing this for the glory of God, that's the determination modeled by Paul here. That's the determination modeled by Jesus Christ. The determination to do that which most glorifies God and makes less and less of me and my desires and my comforts and my conveniences, yea, even my physical life. And that is why Christ went to the cross. That is why Paul went to Jerusalem. Because today's message calls us to be determined to not waver in our pursuit of God's will. Don't let the world get you off track. Don't let your own feelings get you off track. In fact, don't let your own personal safety and freedoms get you off track. If God's word tells us to do something, we must do it no matter the cost. But make sure it's in God's word. Don't use this message as, a, and as an excuse to sin. As I've had people tell me over the years, you know the IRS is corrupt, therefore I'm determined to cheat on my taxes. No, the Bible says, pay taxes to whom taxes are due. You can't use determination to disobey God's word. Our determination is to follow Christ. God's word, what does God's word say? It tells us to pray without ceasing. Despite the cost of time, yes, pray without ceasing. To rejoice always. Despite circumstances, yes, rejoice always. To give generously. Despite the cost of money, yes, despite the cost of money. To spread the gospel. Despite people making fun of me, yes, despite people making fun of you. To fight sin, no matter how appealing sin looks. To stand for truth, despite all the lies around us. To love our neighbors, despite their unloveliness sometimes, and so on. We could only do these things if we have that determination in our hearts because the circumstances will tell us not to. And when we do this, despite our feelings, despite the circumstances, and despite the cost, when we follow the Lord, we are testifying to the world that God's will is more important than mine. Like Paul, we can say, I'm ready to die, I'm ready to suffer, if that means that through my suffering, Christ receives glory. 
How then can we receive that determination and that resolve? It's the same way Paul did. Your union with Christ. This is not a pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just try harder type of thing. This can only be given to you by the grace that is in Christ. Contemplate Him. Meditate upon Him. Worship Him. Remember He who went before us to Jerusalem. Who faced the cross. Whose disciples tried to hold Him back and eventually ran away. Who could have called 10,000 angels to rescue Him. But yet, He went to the cross. Thank God that the Son of God went to Gethsemane. And even prayed, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But He said, not my will, but yours be done. If he did not do that, if he never died for us, we would still be in our sins. But thank God, he who said the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing, said to his father in the hour of dark temptation, with sweat drops of blood, your will be done, O God. And because of Christ's determination to go to the cross, you are saved. His love for you, his child, is unbreakable. It cost him his very life. And because Christ followed the Spirit's will, what do we get out of that? Forgiveness of sins? Reconciliation with God? A home in heaven? Relationship with God's people? Peace in our hearts? The Holy Spirit? All of this because Christ determined to go to the cross. Our determination will never get us into heaven. But Christ's determination does. And we are saved by faith alone in Him, by the grace of God alone. So I encourage you today, lay down your pride. Come to Christ. Find rest for your soul. And then, finding that rest and your identity and your life in Christ alone, you and I will be able to walk through suffering even if we walk against the world. But when we're with God and His will, we are never truly alone.